Well, good morning. I'm glad you guys are here with us as we get into the first message in our new series that we are calling The Good Work. It's about making a difference in the world because changing the world is what Jesus died for. And as we get started this morning, I'm actually going to share something that's kind of personal. I'll let you in on my biggest fear in life. My biggest fear is that someday I'll get to a point where I become content with mediocrity or that I will succeed in the things that don't really matter. I picture myself at the end of my life standing before God and recalling everything that I did with my life, how I spent my money, how I used my time, and how I invested in other people, and if I really made a difference in the world. So that's my greatest fear. But I also know that my greatest joy will come from knowing that I've lived a life of faithfulness to God. And knowing that I was the man that God created me to be and did the things that God created me to do. And I believe that God created each and every one of us with a purpose to do good works for him. It's not by accident that God created you with a unique personality, that you've had the upbringing that you have, that you have the same, a different set of experiences, uh, talents, or ambitions. God has a very unique work for each and every one of us so that we can make a difference in the world. And so this morning, we're going to be answering the question, how do I catch a vision for what God can use us to do to change the world. Because so many of us, we want to do something big for God, but we don't know what his plans and his purposes are, or we don't know what that next step could be. Now, to be honest with you, I didn't always feel called to be in pastoral ministry, but over the course of my life, by process of elimination, I realized that there were some career fields that I was not cut out for. And being a professional cook is one of those fields. You know, back when I was in college, I started experimenting with cooking. I had this ambition that I could prepare for myself much better meals than what the cafeteria could offer me. But here's my problem. I didn't follow recipes. I just kind of like threw stuff together and whipped it up based on my limited cooking knowledge and skills. And I put together some really disgusting food. <laughs> Believe it or not, like I think the worst thing that I ever prepared for myself was like a protein smoothie shake made with a baked potato. <laughs> so I put in the normal ingredients like protein powder, peanut butter, and milk. And normally I would put in Greek yogurt, but I'm like, Greek yogurt, potatoes, they're both white, they're kind of creamy. Well, at least they're both white, so they're pretty close. So I popped the baked potato in there, and as if, as if that wasn't bad enough, I had just pulled it out of the microwave and put it in hot. So I had flavors that didn't match, like the texture was like vomit and it was warm. Absolutely disgusting. So I took a few sips, I'm like, ugh. So then I grabbed some cinnamon and thought, I'll just mask this awful flavor in cinnamon and cover it up. And it was, it, was a, it was a disaster. I threw that out. But 
my cooking has completely changed after I started using cookbooks. When I followed the steps that aligned me with the proper way to actually cook food. And the way that I was cooking before, like it set such a low bar for the food that I was eating. Like I became pretty content with eating less than mediocre tasting food. But when I started using a cookbook, it aligned me with the steps that it takes to have a good finished product and it woke me up from my contentment with mediocrity. And this morning, as we get into God's word, it will lay out for us how we can catch a vision for how God can use us to change the world. It will align us with God's way of doing things so that we're not putting in the hard work of doing the things that don't really matter and so that we will not become content with mediocrity. And so this morning, as we get into the passage, we're going to be drawing four questions from the book of Nehemiah that will help us to identify and live out the vision that God has for us. And so if you'd like to follow along with me, you can turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. And before we start reading, I'll just give you kind of the backstory of what's going on here. I'll go as far back as Moses leading the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And before they entered the promised land, God made a covenant with the nation. It was pretty much this deal that if the Israelites obeyed God, if they didn't follow after the idols, and if they obeyed God's commandments, that God would bless them, that they would have a good harvest from their crops, that they would have a lot of kids and their kids would be healthy, that they would have livestock and their livestock would increase. But here's the flip side. If Israel disobeyed God, if they followed after the idols and the false gods, then God said that he would curse them. God told them that he would raise up another nation to come in and defeat them and to carry them off captive to a foreign land. Well, if you know the history of Israel as it's in First and Second Kings, there were a lot of kings who were following after idols, more bad kings than good kings. And more often than not, the nation of Israel would follow in the way of their kings and following idols and disobeying the commands of God. And so God sent prophets to the Israelites to warn them of the judgment that was going to come. Prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. But the people were hard-hearted and they didn't listen to God. So God did what he said, and he raised up the Babylonians to power. And the Babylonians defeated the nation of Judah. And when they came in, they totally trashed the place. They ransacked the temple, took all the valuables out of the temple, and knocked it to the ground. They totally ransacked the walls, bringing the walls down to heaps of rubble. And then they took the Israelites captive with them to Babylon. And then, 70 years later, the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians. And the king of Persia decreed that the Israelites could go back to their homeland and rebuild the temple. Fast forward 92 years from then is where we pick up in the book of Nehemiah. And so let's start reading. It says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, 
Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So Nehemiah was born and raised in captivity. He had never been to his homeland. And so when his brother and these other guys came by, he had some questions for them. What's it like? What's the food like? Or the people who have come back from exile, have they set up a new way of living and are they doing well for themselves? You see, Nehemiah had all of these questions and his curiosities came out because his homeland was tied to his heart and his heritage. And so the first question that we're going to draw from this passage is, what needs am I curious about? You see, our curiosities are not inconsequential. Our personalities, environment, and experiences are just some of the factors that impact our curiosities. And our curiosities open the door for our passions and our burdens. Let's keep reading. They said to me in verse 3, those who survive the exile are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept for some days. I mourned and fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. For 140 years, God's chosen city just lay in heaps of rubble. And it was a disgrace for the city. I mean, most of us feel pretty embarrassed when we haven't cleaned the house in the week and we have guests over. Imagine how it is for that city. Like, sorry about the heaps of rubble. It's been a busy 140 years, but we'll get to that later. And then the gates with charred marks and scorch marks from the fire as a reminder of their defeat by the Babylonians. And I don't think that was the rustic look they were going for. And so when Nehemiah heard this news, it broke his heart. You know, we too can catch a vision for how God can use us to make a difference in the world when we ask, what need breaks my heart? Think about all the needs in the world. All the needs in Pennsylvania, in Tunkhannock, or the things that we've become okay with that we really shouldn't be okay with. Like, what is the status quo that breaks God's heart? Does, does that break your heart? Maybe you work in the school system and you have a burden to reach students in the school. Maybe you've had a history of addiction and you have a burden for others who struggle with addiction. Maybe you work in a hospital or as a landscaper and you have a burden for people who work in the same career field as you. Do the needs that you see in your day-to-day -day life break your heart? And to be honest, I don't have a burden for every need in the world. I don't have a burden for every overseas ministry. But a couple of summers ago, I worked at a Christian camp, and one of the other counselors was a Haitian guy named Roosevelt. 
And as I got to know him, he shared with me about his ministry in his home country, how there was a church there that was just meeting underneath a mango tree. Like these people would have to carry their chairs up with them, and that tree was the only source of shade and protection from the elements. And I started to just have a burden for these people here. And hearing about just how open they are to the gospel, where their curiosity, if they just saw people meeting in a building, that they would want to go check it out. Or how they could have an awesome kids ministry if all they had was a soccer ball. And it would give them opportunities to share the gospel with kids. It made me see that the resources in America can go such a long ways in that country. And so God just placed the burden on my heart to help him in meeting those needs. And someday I'd love to do a missions trip in Haiti and just help him out with those projects there. And then just a few weeks ago, I was back home at my sister's high school graduation party and talking to one of my old friends there. And he's starting to raise money to be a missionary in Turkey. And we were talking about this idea how it's so much more compelling to get behind somebody's ministry if you know them personally. And so as he's sharing about the ministry that they'll be doing in Turkey, like the people in Turkey were not even on my radar before talking to him. But as he's talking about the needs, God has just placed it on my heart to at least support my friend in prayer. And I don't believe that it is by accident that God has placed those needs in my life, that I've crossed paths with those people. What is it for you? You know, we can't meet every need in the world, but we can all do something to meet a need that comes across our path. So what is it for you? What breaks your heart? And maybe God gave you that burden so that you could do something about it. Nehemiah's burden, it led him to action. It led him to praying to God because he knew that if he could do anything in this situation, it would only be through the power of God. And so his prayer starts in verse 5 and ends in verse 11. And I'm not going to take the time to read the entire prayer, but it pretty much starts out where Nehemiah praises God, and then he confesses his sin and the sin of the nation, and he remembers the promises of God. And his request is just the last part of that prayer. It's the last part of verse 11. He says in the last part of verse 11, Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And then the line under that says, I was a cupbearer to the king. Just a short line, cupbearer to the king, but it gives us an idea of what Nehemiah was praying for. When Nehemiah prays to God, asking him to give him success in the presence of this man, he's referring to none other than the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes, who at that point in history was the most powerful man in the world. And not only that, but King Artaxerxes, just a few years earlier, had actually been the one to put an end to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And you can read about that in uh, Ezra chapter 4, where the enemies of Israel are watching the Israelites rebuild the city, and they're like, we don't like this. And so they sent a letter to the king, and they said, 
check your records because you're going to find out that these Israelites are they're troublemakers and a rebellious people. And so you want to put an end to their work. And so King Artaxerxes checked his records and he's like, you know what, you're right. These guys are troublemakers. And so he put an end to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And this is the very person who holds the key to rebuilding the city and the one that Nehemiah is going to go before. He recognized that the only way he could do anything was to go to God in prayer. And here's the next question for us that we can draw from this is, is our vision a God-sized vision? Is it so big that you cannot do it in your own strength and that you need God to show up? But as we continue to look at the life of Nehemiah, I don't want to just point to Nehemiah as the gold standard and be like, look at everything that Nehemiah did. Be more like Nehemiah. Instead, I want to say, look at what God did through a man like Nehemiah, through a willing servant. And if God can do a work like that through just a willing servant, imagine what God can do through people like you and me. With everything that we've gone through in the last year as a church, do you have a God-sized vision? A vision for, for launching more Bridgewater campuses. Or if we felt called by God to launch a campus in Elk Lake, would you catch that vision? Would you want to be a part of something like that? Do you have a vision for what God can do in the community in Tunkhannock? Or what about your workplace or your school? And if it's a God-sized vision, you're probably not going to see results overnight. And at least that was the case for Nehemiah. As we keep reading in chapter 2, it says that it was the month of Nisan, which is actually four months later than the first time that Nehemiah heard the news about the devastation in Jerusalem and started praying about it and planning to make a difference. And so we can continue reading in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in, the pres- in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? I'll just give you an idea of what it was like to be a cupbearer back in those days. I mean, a few years back, I used to pay one of my younger sisters to make lunches for me that I would take for work. And I thought I was very generous in offering her this side hustle so she could make a few extra bucks. But making sandwiches for your brother is not a very prestigious job. Being a cupbearer for the king, however, is even more than just delivering refills to the king. In fact, Nehemiah was probably an advisor to the king. He was the one who was in his presence so often that he would actually give counsel to how the kingdom was being ruled. And not only that, 
this is where I think it's a pretty sweet gig, is you ever watch those TV shows where there's food judges and they just eat food and like give it criticism and you're like, they eat that kind of food and it's their job? Well, Nehemiah pretty much had that job where he got to taste all of the food before the king would taste it and take a sip of all of his drinks. The stakes are just a little higher for Nehemiah, though, in case those drinks are poisoned. So Nehemiah was an advisor to the king. He taste-tested the king's food. And here's the other catch to his job, though. So it sounds like a sweet job, but if he was sad in the presence of the king... Best case scenario for Nehemiah is the king's like, you're out of here. You lose your job, and Nehemiah loses his position. Worst case scenario is the king doesn't like the way that Nehemiah's glum attitude is rubbing off on him, and he could just say, off with your head, and Nehemiah loses his life. So that probably shows you why Nehemiah is pretty scared in this situation. But perhaps in Nehemiah's greatest moment of fear was also Nehemiah's greatest moment of opportunity. And it was, in that, it was that moment that he had been praying about for four months. And so Nehemiah went for it. And very tactfully, he told the king why he was sad. So let's pick up in verse 4. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. And so I went over to the governor of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. I imagine Nehemiah could have done pretty well for himself in the sales business. He just convinced his boss to take a leave, let him take a leave of absence for something like 12 years. And then he's like, let's build a wall and will you pay for it? And the king paid for it and even provided Nehemiah with safe travel to his destination of something like 700 miles. But for real though, that is totally a God thing. And I love that before Nehemiah made his request to the king, that he sent a silent prayer up to God because he knew that if God did not show up in this thing, it was about to be a disaster. And the king granted his request because the favor of God was on Nehemiah. You know, up until now, we've been asking questions about how we can identify the vision that God has for us so that we can make a difference in the world. But the next question for us 
is what is one step that I can take toward accomplishing that vision? See, whether you work at P&G, in the school systems, in a hospital, or as a landscaper, God has placed you there for a purpose. What are the needs around you? Who are the people that you can impact and make a difference in their lives? And instead of just asking what you can do about it, I want to say it like this. What could God do about it through you? If our hearts break for the things that break God's heart, if we go to God in prayer and take steps towards making a difference, I really do believe that we can make an impact. So what is your next step? As you came in this morning, you probably saw one of these handouts on your chair. And it just lays out the four questions that we talked about this morning. What needs am I curious about? What needs break my heart? Is it a God-sized vision? And what is one step I can take toward that vision? And my challenge for you today is to have a conversation with at least one person where you answer these questions and tell them how, what kind of needs you're curious about, what kind of needs break your heart, and what that vision could be and one step that you would be willing to take towards that. And then... At this moment, uh, just turn your eyes to the screen, and we're going to play a video about someone from our very own campus who took steps towards accomplishing a vision for God. So I started attending Birchwater, and what I loved about the church was the people. People would pull you in and just make you feel loved, but I still didn't feel connected with people on a personal level. So... My son moved up to pre-K, and as I was dropping him off weekly, Heather would ask every now and then if I would be interested in serving. And I would tell her no, because I wasn't capable of it. Um, I wouldn't necessarily tell her that, but I didn't feel that I was mature enough with Bible knowledge to teach even the pre-K room because I had gotten saved like later in my teens, and I really didn't know a lot of the Bible other than the book of John. So after being asked many times, I decided to finally say yes to her because I figured if my kid was in the class, it would be fine. I wouldn't be by myself. I could do it and, you know, be comfortable. So I served there for three months and realized that it wasn't really a good fit for me, but I still wanted to serve. So that's when we opened up the New Montrose Church and they were looking for greeters. So I decided to be one of them for the children's ministry and fell in love with just welcoming people, getting to know people. I felt that it was an easy way to be pushed out of my comfort zone just to get to know people because I wouldn't do it on my own if I wasn't serving. After serving at Montrose for probably a couple of years, our church started getting other campuses and every time we were told that we were, you know, opening up a new church, I never, not one part of me felt like that was for us until Pastor Brett had told us that we were given the Tunkhannock Baptist Church. When I heard that, I kind of like felt like this pit in my stomach. Um, it actually made me sick to think about it because I didn't want to leave Montrose. Um, I finally felt like I had a home, I made friends, 
and everything was going so good, but I knew that as soon as they said Tunkhannock that that's where we were supposed to go. I definitely fought it. Pastor Rich had asked me if I would consider praying about it, and the only reason I said yes is because I can't say no to someone asking me to pray about something. So uh, my husband and I felt that that was what we were supposed to do. After serving there for a few years, I was given this great opportunity to be the children's coordinator, and I just love just loving on people and watching them grow and seeing people take that next step into serving, just watching them connecting with people and learning to love people. If I could tell somebody new to serving or someone thinking about serving a few things to think about or to look at, I would say that first of all, you're serving God. Don't look at it like you're, you know, necessarily serving the church. You're serving God and growing closer to Him. And also, fellowship was big for me. It allowed me to meet a lot of new people, connect with people that have the same passions and desire as you with kids ministry. And lastly, it is an opportunity to grow. Um, I feel that it has allowed me to grow in so many different areas that I didn't think that I would ever grow in. I never, never thought that when I started teaching in pre-K that I would be the children's coordinator just a few years down the road nor did I want to. But God has just given me this desire and this growth that I can't say no to. Just wanted to show that video this morning because it shows the progression of Janelle being in the Montrose campus and serving in the ministry there and how it sparked her curiosity. And then... It set her up to feel a burden for the need in Tunkhannock. And I like that she even admitted that when she thought about moving away from the campus that she was familiar with and moving down to Tunkhannock, it even just made her sick to her stomach. But she had a burden to meet that need. And if you were to ask her a few years ago if she felt like she was up to the task, I'm sure there'd be times when she would tell you that it felt overwhelming that it was a God-sized vision, but God was, has been able to use her and the other workers in kids' ministry to make a difference in the kids' lives in our church and in our community. And just as God used Janelle, just as God used Nehemiah, I believe that God can do a work through you and me. What is that work for you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a God who does awesome things. Uh, you, and you just use us to be a part of the ride. I mean, it's just tools in your hands. And Father, I ask that you would give us willing hearts. I ask that you would um, help us to see the plans and the purposes that you have for us. I ask that our hearts would break for the things that break your heart. I ask that we would not be content with mediocrity but that we would not be chasing after the things that don't really matter. And Father, I ask that we would just live a life of faithfulness to you and taking the next step towards that and whatever it takes. I thank you that we don't have to do it in our own strength. It wasn't Nehemiah that pulled off this whole big project. It was you. And help us to just go to you in prayer when we recognize that you are a God who can do awesome things and you are worthy of all of our devotion. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.